And indeed, we have a feast before us, don't we? Every time we open God's word, it is opening before us a feast. So we have a wonderful passage to feast on this day. Uh, Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses, uh, verse 6 is uh, used in Handel's Messiah, but I'll read the entire chapter. You'll see very easily that it holds together really as one, one beautiful psalm or poem. Uh, so uh, we'll consider the text as a whole. So let's hear uh, God's provision for us from his word for this worship service this morning. Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Well, this beautiful psalm, or song, we could say, it's uh, it, it really uh, in, in a... In, a Hebrew, in the Hebrew world would be something that could be sung. So this psalm really calls us, calls you, I'd like to suggest, to, to, to rethink, reconceptualize your vision of reality. Uh, the imagery, the word pictures and uh, word sounds that you see here are going to be things that are familiar to you. As an earthly human being, but God's Spirit intends to speak to you through and beyond these images that you see in this text to understand eternal truths. It's been said that the essence of science is thinking God's thoughts after him. I think we could say the essence of art is the same, to think God's thoughts after him. So I want you to use 
both your artistic side, your creative side, and your more logical reasoning side of thinking uh, to hear a wonderful message uh, concerning who God is and who you are as God's people in this text. So let's uh, go through this text. It, it easily divides into sections. You probably noticed as I read through it, and the first section is ver the first uh, two verses. It's uh, held together not only thematically, but even by the language. We see a repetition uh, of the word blossom here. In fact, in verse 2, or my translation shall blossom abundantly, it, it actually reads a doubling of that word in the Hebrew. Hebrew language would often add intensity or emphasis to something by simply doubling. So literally it says, blossoming, it shall blossom. So we have three occurrences of the word blossom, and of course that's in contrast to the wilderness the desert, the dryness, okay? And we also have a threefold occasion of the verb to be to rejoice. You see that in verse 2. We're going to rejoice with joy. Again, a doubling of the same word there. And it occurred earlier in verse 1. The desert shall rejoice. It's a rejoice with joy. Now, in English, that sounds like sort of a redundancy. Of course, you're going to rejoice with joy. But again... The text is emphasizing this. So what you're supposed to visualize, I think, in these first two verses is this arid, dry landscape, which would have been very familiar to people living in the biblical world of Isaiah's time, but perhaps is less familiar to us since we live in a, in a very uh, wonderful place in the world. But, but picture a dry, barren land, land that's inhabited by wild animals but is really... Uh, challenging to live in for human beings, and picture that suddenly transformed into a, a lush oasis. That's really what's in view here. And, and a rejoicing comes because of that. This is a transformation that brings rejoicing, and indeed that word rejoicing in itself is intense. It comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to spin. So, so the, the way I like to picture it in thinking about this verse is, is the way a little one sometimes would just spin around with joy. And the uninhibited expression of that joy. So that's sort of what's happening here. There's just this transformation. And of course there's a personification happening here, Right. So nature itself is personified as this girl or this woman who is just given over to rejoicing, just thoroughly happy and glad and singing in joy. But notice, verse 2 calls us to see beyond that natural beauty, which we get a taste of in this world. Yeah, you've had... You've seen scenes in nature, perhaps, that, it, that have moved you, uh, that have struck you, that have filled you with joy, uh, given you feelings of peace or amazement. You've seen that, but I want you to look beyond that because that's where our text takes us. It says, yes, there's a glory and a majesty that can be seen in the natural world. And we're going to see that this points ultimately to the fulfillment in the new heavens and the earth, new earth. There's a glory, look in verse 
20, the glory of Lebanon. Lebanon is known in this time of the, uh, of the history in the world, is known for their awe-inspiring cedar forest. They just take the breath away. And, and so that's what's being pictured here. Picture that arid desert land suddenly given a glory like that magnificent forest of Lebanon. It's given a majesty. I like the term majesty or splendor to interpret the second word there. Some translations use excellence, but that's a little bit too dry, I think. Majesty, splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Carmel uh, literally is taken from the word for garden. And Sharon is a, a part of this uh, land that we know as the Holy Land today. Sharon was a, a land that is was known for its fertility, for its productivity, for its beauty. So the glory and the majesty of these lands, these parts of the territory that are known for their beauty and, and fruitfulness, that is given to this desert land. That's what you're to envision. But notice the last part of that verse, verse 2, that what that earthly glory, that imagery that you're seeing in your mind of a glorious landscape, what that is to point you to is the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, the covenant God of his people. To the majesty of our God. See that there? The glory that is seen in the natural world is to point you to the glory of that belongs to God. We see that, of course, in many places, like Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Sky above is above proclaims his handiwork. We saw Isaiah witness a, a, a worship that called attention to that back in chapter 6. Remember that in Isaiah 6 when we looked at it some time ago? As the, the, the holy beings are worshiping God in heaven, and crying out in, with loud voices, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you have eyes to see, the glory of this world points you to the glory of its creator. Is he doing that? So doing that, do you have those inner eyes to see? We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But before we leave that, uh, that opening section, notice the personal pronoun, plural there. They shall see the glory of the Lord. Uh, they does not refer to the wilderness and desert, even though they're personified earlier there. I think it's rather those who see in this transformed landscape the glory of God. And that's going to be brought out a little bit later, but for now, again, do you see that glory? Can you see beyond, beyond this world the glory of God? Can you see beyond the temporary riches that you enjoy now to the riches that are in Christ Jesus? Can you see beyond what's temporal, which is good, your home that you enjoy, friendships that you enjoy, material things that give you pleasure, but, but can you see beyond them to that which endures, that which is forever? That's one thing we want to ask ourselves about in this text. Well, let's go to the second stanza, as it were, of this 
psalm, which is an imperative. We're given a command here. So you are to strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. I really identified with that, uh, dealing with the weakness of arthritis in my hands and uh, having had my uh, weak knees replaced uh, with artificial ones. So you're called to, to strengthen those who are weak. The transformation of the desert, you see, is leading us into thinking about the transformation of people. You catch that? Okay, the desert, the wilderness is transformed into a lush oasis. Now you're commanded, well, strengthen weak knees, strengthen weak hands, build up people, seek to see people transformed. Well, how, do, how does that happen? Well, it tells us there in verse 4, doesn't it? We've got these weak hands, people with weak hands, feeble knees, anxious hearts. The, the verb there, by the way, it literally means a hurried heart. <laughs> the idea is that, is that an anxious person makes impulsive decisions. Their, their thinking is, is hurried and they make mistakes. So what do you say to those people? How do you strengthen them? Well, you speak to them that message there in quotation marks beginning in verse 4. Be strong. Fear not. How often do we see those words in Scripture, don't we? You probably think of, you know, incidents like Joshua outside of Jericho, for instance, where people are told, be strong, don't be afraid. But remember, remember this, okay? This is not telling someone to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Okay, you get from the world this message, be strong, don't be afraid, but it's, it's always an empty, hollow encouragement. Because you, you, if you're weak, how do you make yourself strong? If you're afraid, how do you suddenly wave a magic wand and make yourself unafraid? When, when the world tells you, well, you just got to grit your teeth and, and do it. You just, you just have to overcome. You just have to persevere. You just have to be strong. Really, that, that's very discouraging in the end, isn't it? Because what they're saying is you have no resources outside yourself. So you better just get to it. Well, that's easy for somebody to say that's not having a problem. <laughs> it's easy for somebody who's well to say to someone who's sick, be strong. It's easy for someone who's not afraid to say to somebody who's afraid, don't be afraid. But that's not, that's not the message that our text is giving us here, is it? Because that thought goes on. Be strong, fear not. Why? What's the basis for that? Well, look. That's what the behold is saying here. It's calling your attention here. Behold, okay? Here's how you can be strong. Here's how you can not be afraid. You're God. You're God. I, I, sort of, I, I love the way that is right on one line, isolated. And all the thought continues, but... But don't you love the way that reads? Be strong, fear not, behold your God. Don't look to yourself. Look to your God. Look to your God. And what has that God done? What has he promised to do? What is he doing right now? Our text goes on. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense, that is the repayment, repayment, getting what you deserve of God. He will come and save you. Let's, let's walk through that. Because here in these three lines, in these three actions, we see the actions of God on behalf of his people that make it possible for them to be strong and not be afraid. Okay? So first, the word vengeance is used. This, this language echoes the previous chapter, which is a word of judgment. Back in 30, chapter 34, verse 8, we read, Yahweh... The covenant God of his people, remember, has a day of vengeance. A day, a year, I should say, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. If you're a child of God, you have a God, you have a relationship with a God who exacts vengeance on evil. Not one wrong done goes unpunished. Not one. Now how does that how does that give us confidence? Well notice that that when we read that vengeance is God's, that has an effect on us. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter twelve, beginning of verse nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul goes on, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying... You leave vengeance to God as an act of faith. Okay, the world says get vengeance now. That's the only way that you can be sure that you'll get it is if you get it for yourself right now. But, but the heart of faith says I'm going to leave vengeance to God. Every wrong done against me, I'm leaving it to him to avenge. I'm leaving it to him to make recompense, to repay any wrong done to me or a loved one. And really, that, that's the only response that really makes sense. When the ungodly seek to avenge themselves, they never succeed. Right? And perhaps in your flesh, occasionally, you've tried to do that, and you realize this from personal experience. Human power is never able to execute perfect vengeance. There's always something lacking. It's not quite good enough. And besides that, when you seek to exact vengeance yourself, you're bringing yourself down to the level of the person whose vengeance you're trying to wreak. And you're putting yourself under the vengeance of God. So leave it to God is an act of faith, Paul's saying. He will repay God repays sin. Perhaps there comes to your mind uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God makes recompense for evil. So there's another encouragement to be strong and, and free from fear because God is holy and without sin. And so you, 
you can know that he's going to repay every wrong done. He's going to balance the scales, in other words. Perfect justice is going to be rendered. Justice far better, infinitely better than any, any that you could, rate, uh, could try to get for yourself. So, knowing that your God is a God of vengeance, he is a God who repays, gives you confidence to trust in him to make things right. Now, there's great assurance in that, but perhaps you're already ahead of me in your thinking and you're saying, yes, but that vengeance and recompense is owed to me as a sinner as well. As we call for God to execute justice on sin, we're not just calling on him to execute justice for sin out there, are we? We're calling for him to execute justice for sin that's right here. And in fact, I know the sin right here in me a lot better than I know any sin in, your, in you. So if it was just, if it was just that, this would be a really scary thought. But there's that third element that I haven't gone to, isn't there? And there in the last line of verse 4. He will come, and where we might expect him to come in judgment upon us, he comes instead to save. He will come. He, see, the, the, the tense here would actually, uh, would actually lead us to, to act, see this as a continued action. We, we could, in a, in a literal sense, interpret this. He is coming and is saving you. He is continually doing this. David says in Psalm 7, My shield is with God who saves, literally, who is saving the upright in the hearts. Psalm 18, Yahweh, using the covenant name for God, is my God. He is the horn that is the power, the strength of my salvation. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Or Psalm 34, 18. Isn't this a beautiful promise? God, Yahweh, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God saves his people even now. This isn't something you just have to think, well, this, that's going to happen someday, I hope. No, God does this right now for you as his people by preserving you, enabling you to persevere in faith. Now, it is true that, that you'll experience the fullness of that and the consummation of salvation that will come at the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So there's, there's as someone has said, there's an already experiencing it now, but a not yet having experienced the fullness yet. But for now, no know that you experience this saving by placing your faith in Christ. Isaiah puts it this way in chapter 30, verse 15, Thus said the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. How can, how can you say, be strong, fear not? How can you say that to yourself? when your heart is anxious, when you feel weak, was well, on the basis of what God has done for you. 
He is a just God, and yet he is a savior at the same time. And we're pointed then to that ultimate fulfillment that I mentioned just a minute ago in verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's that, there's that fulfillment of God's grace that we saw personified in nature in the beginning of this song, now applied to people. And of course, you, you're already ahead of me, I'm sure, in seeing this as fulfilled in Jesus. That he comes as the one who is opening the eyes of the blind, the one who is unstopping the ears of the dead, the one who is making the lame man leap, and freeing the mute to sing with joy. Jesus himself calls attention to that, that ministry in a number of places that I won't mention right now, including the one where the disciples of John come asking him, are you the one who is sent? And and Jesus just points to these acts, these miraculous acts, and saying, okay, go back and tell John what you're seeing. You're seeing the blind see, the deaf hear, and the poor having the gospel preached to them. So it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But of course, of course, that's not completely fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, is it? He comes in his first coming. And his doing this is testimony, is proof that he is the anointed one of God, sent to save his people. But history is continuing, right? There are still blind people. There are still lame people. So this passage is pointing us not only, not only pointing the people of Isaiah's day to Jesus' coming, first coming, which is history for us, but it's pointing both the people of Isaiah's day and us to that second coming of Jesus when we will see this realized, when you will experience it yourself. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You may experience temporal answers to prayers for healing in your own life. But you know that no matter how often this body is healed, sooner or later, if the Lord doesn't come again, it's going to die. It's a temporary healing. And you're looking forward to that full transformation that this is talking about. You're looking forward to that resurrection body, that transformed body that you will enjoy. Paul describes it this way. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, contrasting our present bodies with our resurrected bodies. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. This is why he says, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. 
The first man, that is Adam, your ancestor, was a man from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that is Jesus Christ, if you're in him, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. You're an ancestor, you are a descendant of Adam, and so you've inherited his corruptible nature. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also will bear the image of the man of heaven. It's no coincidence then that the last part of verse 6 and verse 7 take us back to that transformed creation of the first verses. So that new people in resurrected state are the inhabitants of that transformed world. And for the people of Isaiah's day who, who are familiar with dry land and dry seasons, that image is associated very much, you see, in verses last part of verse 6 and verse 7, with water. Uh, the water is an image for the, re, the life-giving work of the Spirit here. So we have, in, in a sense, a, a glimpse here of heaven where bodies are new, where all of creation is made new. Well, how do we get there? Well, that's in the next verse, isn't it? Verse 8. A highway shall be there. That's very literally the meaning of this term, a way cast up. In ancient times, they built up, just as we build up our freeways or interstate highways, a way will be built up there, the way into the place of God, into the presence of God. And that's a way of holiness. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And those people are protected, our text says. Okay, they're protected from the unclean, because they won't be on the path, and they're protected from their enemies, here personified as ravenous beasts, like lions. So those who are of, to use the language of Psalm 24, they're of clean hands and pure hearts will be protected on this way into the presence of God. They have given themselves wholeheartedly to God. That's pictured also there in those verses in 24. And they've kept their oaths of allegiance to him. That's the counterpoint to swearing falsely. And so they're guaranteed that... They make their way into the presence of God. Now, if you could say that you're not a sinner, if you could say that you've never known any sinful thought or desire or deed, you'd say, well, this is my highway to heaven. Right? But, of course, that's not the case, is it? Instead, you say, like Isaiah did back in chapter 6, and like I say, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh of hosts. What is the result when sinners are in the presence of God? It is destruction. It is judgment. Jesus says that 
That's what he's going to do when he comes back. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is the beginning of creation. He calls himself then the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the, and the end. Jesus is the beginning of creation, but he's also there at the end of it. And at that end for sinners is the wrath of God that is an eternal hell. Well, what hope is there then for sinners? Well, we saw that back in Isaiah chapter 6 too, didn't we? Because after Isaiah confesses his sin, that he is worthy of destruction, God has one of the seraphim fly to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Atonement is made for your sin. To use another biblical metaphor, your only hope as sinners is that you be cleansed that your filthy robes of your own righteousness would be washed and made clean. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say in Revelation 22 after that verse that I just read. He says, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. But he goes on then to a blessing. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to see the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. They can go that way of holiness that he's talking about here. And so that accords with John's vision in chapter 7. For he looks and he sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're not crying out, we were better than everybody else, so we got in. No, they're saying we were saved by God's grace. And in that vision, one of the elders addresses John saying, who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? And John says to him, Sir, you know. And here's the answer. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's the cleansing. There's the cleansing, that marvelous transformation that makes filthy sinners white through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so passage goes on to say that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water there's that water imagery from our text again God will wipe away every tear from their eyes it's the one kind of water that won't be in heaven <laughs> the water from tears but the water of his presence will be there with us forever and so I hope that that you've been brought then through this psalm to the end of it there. So that you can say, I see now that I'm one of those who are redeemed in verse 9. The redeemed shall walk there in the way of the holiness. 
not those who have earned it by their, by their own good works, but those who have been bought by Jesus Christ. And it thought is repeated in verse 10, and the ransomed of Yahweh, those whom he has ransomed by his own action, shall return. It's through repentance that that work happens. I don't think it's a coincidence that the image of returning here is used since repentance is a turning around. And they'll come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Your walk with Christ, I pray, is one that, that has, a, has a foretaste of that joy. Even in the midst of suffering, I pray that you've got a foretaste of that joy. So you're on the way of holiness. You're called to be a holy people. Your blind spiritual eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel. Your deaf ears spiritually have heard the word of the gospel. And God is has touched you and given you new legs to walk in his way, to be his holy people. He's given you a courage when your heart is hurried and anxious. He's done all that for you so that you can walk in his light and know the joy of being his child. Your tongue has been loose to sing God's praises, to testify of his grace to you, and to teach the gospel to others. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to experience this. Heavenly Father, truly from beginning to end, this is your work. As we were thinking at the beginning of this service, we're so grateful that you're a holy God, a righteous God. How horrible it would be to live in a world where there was no God, to live in a world where there is a God and he was not holy. You are a holy and righteous God. You have made a way for sinners like us. You have opened our eyes that were blind to your truth. You have opened our ears to hear it. You've softened our hearts to repent and put our faith in you. Continue that work, Lord, in our hearts. Uh, we're, we're on the way, uh, but we're certainly not there yet. Uh, so keep us walking in your ways by your grace, by your strength. Uh, help us to depend not on our own strength, but upon the strength of your spirit. Keep us in your word, reading it, feeding on it, so that we're strengthened that way. And, and give us humble hearts that are, that are willing to obey it, even when it's hard to do so. And help us to encourage one another in that as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.